I want to read four passages of Scripture this morning. First, Matthew chapter 1. The first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read verses 21 through 24. Matthew 1, 21. The angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph, announcing the birth of the Lord Jesus, says, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Now all this has come to pass that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth a son. And he called his name Jesus. Then to chapter to Luke, first of all in chapter 2, Verse 29, in the blessing of old Simeon, upon the occasion of his seeing the baby, Jesus, in the temple. Luke 2, 29. Now let you, your servant, depart, Lord, according to your word, in peace. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. And then back to Luke chapter 1, verse 68. The father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied and said these words, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and wrought redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets that have been from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware unto Abraham our father, to grant unto us 
that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, should serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now read that with me one more time, verse 74 and 75. To grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, should serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And then finally turn with me to John chapter 17. As we continue our consideration of the Gospel of John and this portion of that Gospel in our Lord's high priestly prayer before he departed and went to his throne in heaven, we read these words beginning with verse 20 of John chapter 17. And we remember, if you've been with us, that he's been praying especially for his apostles. Now he says in verse 20, Neither for these only do I pray, but for them also that believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you did send me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire also that they whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world knew you not, but I knew you, and these knew that you did send me. And I made known unto them your name, and will make it known, that the love wherewith you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Please again join me as we bow together and pray. Our Father, you have appointed the means of the preaching of your word to quicken the souls of dead and dull people. You have sent messengers with this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may be of you and not of men. And what an opportunity this morning, O God, for you to display your glory in the use of the instrument of clay to proclaim your word to a weak people. 
and to show your power in using your word by the Spirit to awaken us and quicken us. O Lord, don't leave us where we are. Stir us and shake us out of our sleep. Awaken us to righteousness and fill us with hunger and thirst after your word. Let us not rest without being moved by the truth and to desire more of it. And let us not, O Lord, this morning receive what we deserve, but come in grace and help the preacher and the hearer, that the Lord Jesus Christ may be exalted and your word may be opened up plainly and applied powerfully, and that our lives may be affected as it ought, as they ought to be affected, that you may be glorified and pleased. Lord, let us not go home feeling that we've made it through another day without undue pressure on our consciences. Let us not go home without having our sins exposed. Let us not go home, O oh God, not closer to you than we were when we came. But live, lead us and help us and bless us and move near to us merely for the sake of your Son and his righteousness and on the ground of his accomplishments for us. O oh Lord, come and pour out your Spirit upon us, upon our guests, upon the members of your church and their children. May Christ be exalted in this hour. Hear us, O Lord, and our simple request for Jesus' sake, and do not disappoint us, but answer us in grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I intend to do this morning is to preach to you regarding your own personal interest in the birth of Jesus Christ. In other words, what has it to do with you and how do you view it and how has it affected the way you live? To the section of the Bible which we've read in John 17, we should give the closest attention. For it is in this passage of Scripture that we found what our Lord desires for us, His people. What He intends for us and what He prays for us. These verses in John 17 inform us that every saint of God has a purpose in the plan of God. These passages show us our destiny as the people of God. Everyone who has forsaken the world and his sin and has believed upon Christ has a purpose and an end. And the Lord Jesus Christ unveils for us in this passage what is our destiny as his people. It is our duty to learn it. It belongs to us. Do you wish to know what God plans for you? Do you care how things will turn out for you? Well, in this passage of Scripture that we've read in John 17, it's all here. Let us explore this passage of Scripture, considering clearly what the Lord Jesus intended when he came into this world for those for whom he came so that we may lay hold upon it in our hearts with confidence and rejoice in the face of it, and that any who are with us this morning who have not reconciled themselves to God by sacrifice, may get right with God before their destiny turns out not to be the blessed one that we read about. The Lord opens up for us in this section of Scripture the ultimate reason for His coming into the world. And this morning as I came to church and turned my van into the driveway, 
I noticed a lady headed for church, counting her rosary beads. And no doubt, in the process of the counting of the rosary beads, praying to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a part of the recitation of the rosary. And asking, perhaps, the mother of Jesus to pray to Jesus for her that perhaps she could persuade Jesus to give some request that she is asking. My heart was, of course, grieved and saddened by seeing that a sincere older woman doing her duty to go to worship in the Lord's Day morning, following what she's been taught faithfully, going down the street counting every bead and renouncing, pronouncing every prayer that applied to each bead faithfully, diligently, with concentration, not looking to the right or to the left. How it grieved my soul to see someone with such error and such devotion to such error. Not only grieved to notice that she was more devoted to her preparations for worship than many of you no doubt were, but that she was more devoted to it to a frustrated end, not to the satisfaction of the longings of the deepest parts of our souls. It is not our privilege this morning to worship the mother of Jesus, but to worship her son, who is the son of God. And it is our desire to open up to you what he came into the world to do, he did not come into the world to build an ornate, candlelit, expensive religion. He did not come into the world to produce all manner of complicated worship techniques which do not save the soul, but keep people in bondage to the devotion to darkness. He did not come into the world so that once a year we may give his name homage or so that we may make reference to his birth as something that makes us feel good nor even that he might promote military peace around the earth. He never intended that this era of, of history would be marked by military peace. He even prophesied to us that it would be marked by just the opposite, wars and rumors of wars. He came himself, in fact, and stated that he did not come to bring peace on the earth, meaning he did not come into this world to make everybody love everybody else. That wasn't why he came. He said, in fact, I came not to bring that kind of peace where the universe of people all get along fine. I came to bring a sword, the sword of division, not voluntary division in which children turn against their parents or parents turn against their children but the resulting division brought about when a person turns from his sin and the world and sits himself at the feet of Christ and sets himself to follow Christ whatever it costs and the result of that cost is that those who love him in this world can no longer love him in this world because he does not any longer think like this world. He belongs to another and he follows another and he worships another.
The Lord did not come just to give a warm feeling. He came for a much greater and longer term result than that. Now I want you to notice one thing before we continue. When the Lord prays what he's praying in this passage we've read in John 17, there is very little evidence around him visible of his successful ministry. There's very little on which he could base any confidence if he looked around. Many of the multitudes have left him and ceased to follow him. They have become offended at his message. They cannot endure sound doctrine. They prefer to tickle their ears with others who would say the things their consciences feel comfortable hearing. He is, has only a small band of followers after three years of public ministry. Thirty-three years of sinlessness and unusual giftedness has produced a small band a motley crew of confused followers who in the next few hours are themselves going to forsake him and be offended in his arrest and trial and crucifixion. There's no visible evidence in his earthly ministry that this unique man has succeeded. And were he to have judged the way many of us judge, he would have given it up then. He no doubt would have been praying desperately, complaining, frustrated, maybe even somewhat disillusioned or even bitter because what he dreamed when he came didn't come to pass. You say, well, he knew the future. He knew what was going to happen, so he prayed with confidence. That's absolutely right. And therefore, we may pray with confidence because he knows the future. And when he prays from the perspective of one who knows the future, we may gain comfort and encouragement and pray as well with that same confidence of his knowledge of the future. Now having said that, I want us to open up this passage in the following way. First to consider the subjects of the prayer. Next to consider the substance of the prayer. Third, the reasons for the prayer. Fourth, the ground of the prayer or the basis on which he is able to expect this prayer to be heard. The subjects, the substance, the reason, and the ground. And if we have time to make some pertinent ob observations and applications to our consciences. First of all, consider with me the subjects of this prayer. Verse 20. Neither for these only do I pray, but for them also that believe on me through their word. And as we've intimated earlier in our exposition of the chapter, this word believe is a prophetic present tense. Some uh, translators have made it into the future tense, but the older and probably better manuscripts put it in the present. But the present tense verb is used here in its prophetic sense because of the context, because of what we know is going on at the time of this prayer. We know that he's praying for all those who will believe upon him through the word 
of the apostles. Not for these apostles only do I pray, but for them also that will believe on me through their word. He prays it with the present tense as though the whole world of believers were already standing before him. As though they were already believing. He prays with his omniscience and his confidence in the presence of all the believers as though they already believe. It's a blessed thing when you analyze that kind of prayer. All those that believe on there weren't very many right then that were believing on him but through their word. These men had not even received the full revelation of the word. He had said many other things I'd like to tell you. You can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll lead you into all truth and you shall then preach to the ends of the earth. And it's those that will hear those apostles preaching to the ends of the earth that will believe on him. And yet he speaks it in the present tense because of his prophetic confidence of its accomplishment. In verse 11, in fact, he's already said to the Father, I am no more in the world. And yet there he was, standing in the world, saying, I am no longer in the world. There's the use of that present tense prophetic language. I want to make a note, though. The subjects of this prayer are all believers of all time. Everyone who shall ever believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ through the word of the apostles are the subjects or is the subject of this prayer. He's praying for them, for us. But let me take a little side trip here theologically. It never hurts to instruct people with pertinent contemporary truth that applies to contemporary error. If men have absolute free will, meaning that they are completely independent of any influence of God upon them so as to secure their response to anything he may say to them. If men are completely free to do as they will at any moment in history, if men are constantly, completely sovereign as to their believing upon Christ, and if God therefore cannot bring them to faith whenever he will, because they are free from his influence in that way, how can Christ in this prayer be certain that any will ever believe? You say, well, he sees the future. Well, you can't predict the future when you're dealing with totally free moral agents. Because they can change the future. They can exercise their, they can change their minds. Oh, but they won't. Why? Well, the Lord knew they would. How did he know they wouldn't? Well, he knew the future. He can't know the future unless he determines the future. You cannot predict the future unless you know one who is in control of seeing to it that that future occurs. There is no determined future in a world full of people who are sovereign. You can have no confidence in tomorrow if you're dependent on men. Because men are fickle. You say, I've heard it, I've heard it, why do you have to throw that in? Because as many times as some of you have heard it, you still aren't sure. And some of you have never heard it. And some of you have argued your position from an inferior intelligence. You've not argued from thoughtful biblical logic. 
The Lord Jesus is not praying as one who is saying, Now, Father, the law of averages means that there's surely going to be some to believe. I hope your salvation is not dependent on the law of averages. Actually, so many, so few, so far believe, there's got to be a few more. No, no, that's not. Where's such a law written? Where's the law of averages written down? Whoever said that there was the law of averages? How did you be saved? Is it the law of averages that saved you? There's no reason for you to have been saved apart from the inner working of God's grace. Was the Lord here living in a dream world of wishful thinking? Praying with the supreme optimism of one who didn't know reality? No, he was praying with the supreme optimism of God and the supreme realism of God who knew that he was going to bring the whole world to himself and knew everyone for whom he prayed and knew that all those for whom he came were going to believe on him when the God determined they were going to believe on him. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, do not you take glory for it. You give praise to God for it. You never would have believed if God hadn't turned your heart. God did something in you a long time before you ever did anything for God. He worked upon you. He changed your rotten old self-centered proud heart. That's why you believe. If you don't like that, and if you resent that, it's because you still don't believe. Because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart knows it was grace that did it. You may not comprehend and understand it all, but your heart knows it wasn't you. And you cannot find a, a spot in your heart that boasts of how well you exercised your faith. Well, that's so much for that little theological note. The Lord is not praying certainly for those who will believe on him as some wishful thinker are depending on the law of averages, but as God who will see to it that they believe. But know what he's saying. He's praying for all those who believe. He's not praying for everyone who will ever be born. The Lord Jesus Christ in this prayer is not praying in the universal sense of praying for every single person ever to be born in the world. He restricts it to believers. I am praying specifically, particularly, exclusively for those who will believe. And he puts it in the present tense so that as to make it all the more absolute whom he's praying for. Those who I am looking at who believe. Those whom I know and have known from the foundation of the world the believers, I'm praying for them. Now don't be too hasty to diminish the significance of that because of your superior love for the world and you're feeling sorry for people that aren't included in this request. Don't feel that you're going to do God a service by getting everyone involved in this prayer or that somehow you're demeaning the glorious love of Christ by suggesting that he's not including everyone in the world. Because there's great comfort to the saint in seeing these words. That you specifically and particularly have a particular and special privilege from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who prayed for you in a way he's never prayed for others. If we may say it, it's the reason you're saved that he prayed for you. Had he not prayed for you to be saved, you wouldn't be saved. And had he prayed for everyone to be saved, everyone would be saved. 
Now that must force our consciences to reckon with the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He is God and he does all his will. He prays for believers. But notice, not only believers, but believers in Christ. For those who shall believe on me. Not believers in just anything, but on Christ. And this preposition on is the preposition ice. It means into, unto, upon. Pray, believing upon, into Christ. He's not praying for those who will believe upon Christ because there's some common experience that they share with others. In other words, they can all point to some sort of past emotional experience. He's not praying for those who have confidence in their righteousness and who therefore think of themselves as Christians who can point either to a time in which they made a required decision or can point to a lifestyle that appears to be relatively righteous compared to others. They go to church regularly. Their church has a confession of faith. It's orthodox, historical Christianity. They don't smoke or drink or cuss. They don't go to parties. They don't go to movies. They don't go to the fair. They don't watch television which, by the way, would be required if they didn't do any of the other things and wanted to be consistent. They have confidence in their righteousness. Perhaps they would boast with the Pharisee, I tithe of all that I possess. I fast twice a week. I have morning devotionals, noontime meditations, and evening devotionals. No, for those who do not believe in themselves, but in me. Those who have not have confidence in reformation or turning over a new leaf or becoming a bit better, who do not have confidence in their strenuous exercise of worship and religion, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle, in the do-nots. In our world, in the Western world, it's filled with such fake Christians who are convinced that they are believers on Christ because they've done without this and they've given up that and they've done this and followed this rule. Those things in themselves have utterly, absolutely nothing to do with saving. In fact, often they keep people from the very salvation they profess. Who believe on me. Now again, not Christians who believe a body of doctrine about Christ, who has the name Jesus on their lips, but it is not according to Scripture. But he goes on to say, who believe on me through their word, the apostles' word. The truth as it is in Jesus and as it is enunciated by the apostles. Nothing less than the Bible view of Jesus. The biblical Christ. Not the search for the historical Jesus of an Albert Schweitzer. But the biblical Christ of the apostles. Who believe on me, but not just me in any way they prescribe. Not just me the way evangelicalism of the modern world would prescribe. Not just any way they choose. 
are not just the portions of Scripture that they prefer, but who believe on me through the word of the apostles, which has become the inscripturated Bible of the New Testament. If the Bible does not produce faith in Jesus Christ alone for all salvation, if your Bible hasn't brought you to turn away from every other confidence, both in yourself and in the world, to rest solely on Christ, not his mother, not your righteousness, not religion, but on a person, on his finished work at Calvary, his resurrection, his current session, his second coming, and dependence on him, whereby you look away from yourself and will trust in him with all your heart. If your Bible has not produced that faith, your Bible you're not being, is not being read properly. Your Bible is a Bible that leads men to Christ alone. And if it doesn't do it, it's not the Bible as God put it. Also, we may say if faith in Christ alone does not come according to the Bible definition, it's not a saving faith. The Bible, properly understood, produces faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone is always according to the Bible. If it's not, it's not faith in Christ. You do not have the luxury of determining which parts of the Bible Jesus you want and which parts you don't. May I simply make a clear, current application. There are many that could be made, but I will denounce what is called liberal Christianity. The Protestant churches who have forfeited the gospel and changed it to a political and social agenda who has taken the gospel of a Savior from sin and turned it into a gospel of a Savior from the ghetto and have relegated the mission of Christ for which he was sent into the world as a mere leveling of economy and social status. Many in our world have turned Bible gospel into what is called liberation theology and are promoting a Marxist revolution in the name of Jesus. There are others, more noble, much more biblical, who are convinced that it is the mandate of Christ that we Christians run the world, that we be the president, we be the senators, we be the judges, and we take the world for Christ. Many good men, believe that it is the destiny of the church to rule the world, that we are to take over all the institutions of the world, that we are to be so active as Christians in the politics and as the church in politics and in our preaching of the gospel that eventually we're going to have most of the world be Christians. Now, I use that illustration because that is a coming theology and I believe probably the next major error in fact, I would not be surprised if that piece of theology called Reconstructionism or Theonomy or Dominion Theology does not rule the evangelical world in the next generation. We're set up for it. We're frustrated. 
because justice isn't being meted out. We're frustrated because churches are being persecuted when they try to stand for the truth. And we want to establish Christ's glory in the earth. And we read the Bible and it appears to some of us that some of those prophecies aren't coming to pass. And we, we want to make them come to pass. So we find a theology that fits it. I tell you, the Bible Christ is not a Christ who's going to set you up in a better house and a better car and a better job. He's the Christ that's going to take you to nothing less than heaven itself. This other stuff is irrelevant. It may or may not come. You're going to enter the kingdom of God through much suffering, through much affliction. He did not come to deliver you from affliction in this world, but to deliver you to it and through it. The Lord Jesus Christ, the saving Christ of the Bible, is not producing something other than what the Bible says. To save us from this present evil age. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Turn with me. I want you to see this verse. Perhaps someday we'll expound it more fully. But I want you to see this verse. Summarizing the reason that Jesus died. Galatians 1 verse 4 speaking of Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. He did not die primarily for our social system, or did he die to deliver us so that we may rule over this present evil age as the church, but in order to deliver us out of this present evil age. His goal in dying was to get us out of this world. And he'll not have finished his work until we're out. And in the meantime, his purpose for dying was so that we would live while we're in this world as though we do not fit in this world. We're not to be of this world just as the apostles were not. Believers in Christ, according to the word of the apostles in the Bible, that's who he's praying for, and nobody else. But what about the substance of the prayer in the second place? What is it he's asking for these believers, all of his church, all of the universal church of true believers in Christ? Well, the overriding umbrella request of the Lord may be seen in verse 21, again in verse 22, and I believe in verse 23. Read it with me. That they may all be one. Verse 22. The glory I gave to you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one. Verse 23. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected into one. Three times. He repeats this request as though his heart is veritably breaking and bursting with his longing that they all, the true believers in himself according to the apostolic message, may be one. Now that umbrella request makes the way for all else that goes in this request. 
Think with me about what this oneness is that he's asking. I've summarized it in three things. Oneness in faith, in love, and in hope. And I'm very biblical when I do it. Oneness in faith. That means that he prayed to his Father, and it is his will before his Father that all believers in him share common convictions centered in and focused upon himself. The Lord Jesus Christ has been revealed in the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament, hidden there in types and shadows and carnal ordinances. He was believed on by Abraham and by David and others, and then fully revealed to the apostles of the New Testament and through them to us. The Lord Jesus Christ, around whom the community of faith circulates, and centers all of its life and its beliefs. Common convictions centered in and focused upon Christ. That's what he means by one faith. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And look at the apostolic summary of unity in the church. And brethren, you will be tempted to forsake this doctrine the more you live in this world. A great movement with great political backing and extreme genius and power is afoot in the earth to make us all one. Already in, the, in Europe and all over the British Isles, Protestants are joining up with Rome again in order to have Christian unity. And to use the word Christian for such unity almost nauseates some of us who know what it means to be Christian in the biblical sense. And yet it's a very popular movement and to stand outside that movement, even to suggest that you hate it and don't want to be, a, even to suggest you're not excited about it, puts you off in a category that is not very desirable in our world. You are the fly in the ointment. You are a burr under the saddle. You are an irritant. The same way the Lord Jesus was. Read this passage with me. Ephesians 4, verse 3. Giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he describes what this unity is. There is one body and one Spirit. Now, so far, so good. The charismatic renewal and the Roman Catholic renewal, which have melded together now in many cases to produce and move toward an ecumenical oneness, would be glad to recognize there's one body and there's one spirit. In fact, they would use this text to support the movement by saying it's not right that we be divided into lots of bodies. There's one body. Now, let's all get back together. Now, where can we meet? Where would be the most logical body in which we could all find? Well, we certainly wouldn't expect the great massive Roman church to condescend to join some other body. So let's move back there. And we think we found the key to how we can fellowship with them. One spirit. And what they mean by one spirit is 
the common experience of speaking with tongues as evidence that you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's one body, there's one spirit, do you have it? What's the proof? Now, brethren, I'm not making this up. I didn't dream it up. This is not hypothetical. It is a very popular approach in our day. Many in the charismatic movement who were reared not to believe what Rome believes are now flirting with Rome itself because of this common experience. Because once they've said to us other lesser Protestants that we ain't got the better, the second blessing, and once they've convinced themselves that they have the thing that proves you're saved, and then a Roman Catholic priest comes up and says, I have that thing too. I speak with tongues. Then their argument crumbles and they either have to quit saying that's the issue or they have to accept the Roman Catholic priest as an equal Christian. What's happened? They have turned away from what comes after this and they've bowed to what this is and redefined one body and one spirit. Look on. Even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord. Now, how could anybody hear a man call himself the church's father and think that doesn't contradict this? Or how could anyone hear a man in this world call himself the church's infallible prophet, the church's high priest, and the church's king and head think it doesn't contradict this. There's one Lord. One faith. Not faith in a common experience. Not faith in a common religion. Not faith in a common ritual. Or a common prayer book. Not faith in being able to point back to a common ex a decision. But faith embodied in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the apostolic scriptures. Outside that faith is not the true faith. There's one faith. It's the New Testament faith. And it must be defined in the terms of the New Testament. And it must define salvation not in terms of, a, of an ecstatic experience with a nebulous thing called linguistics. It must be defined in the repentance from sin, the confidence in Christ alone as my Savior from sin, and the church ordered according to his revealed laws for his church and not by the traditions of men. When it's anything other than that, it's not the one body, the one spirit, the one Lord, and the one faith of the Bible. Brethren, the, the division is not the product of those who preach this. The division is the result of those that don't like this and want unity on another term. We would welcome the world to Christ and His church. We're not attempting to divide ourselves from the world. I would welcome the Pope in fellowship with me if he would repent, humble himself, and look away from himself to Christ. The division is not caused by the truth of the orthodox faith of history. They didn't create the division. The Protestant Reformation was not a result of men leaving the faith, but discovering the faith and calling all Rome to bow to the Lord of the faith. And Rome would not do it.
The original intent was not to break off from Rome. It was not the spirit of the reformers. They were left with no choice. One God and Father of all. You cannot establish Christian unity when you're led by a man who says that Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and Christians can all worship the same God in their various ways. There's one God and one Father of us all. And he doesn't go under different names and he doesn't appear forms, he's already revealed himself in one Lord, his Son, Jesus Christ. There's an absolute rigidity to the Christian worldview. There's an absolute narrowness. By definition, every religion in the world is mutually exclusive of all others. No matter how they claim to be inclusive, how can one religion include all without excluding itself from all the rest who don't include all? Did you follow that logic? We include all, so we're not exclusive. Oh, but what about us who don't include all? You've excluded us because we don't believe what you believe. You can't pretend your way into unity. Though many would love to do it. And you know what the common denominator is? I don't want to address the issue of sin. They don't want to address the issue of the law of God. They want to drift into a relation with God and his people without reckoning with repentance. And the gospel of Christ, in its very foundational essence, begins with an assumption of sin and guilt and the need of a redeemer. And once you don't want to talk about sin anymore as the problem in the world, once you speak of we need to educate these young people so that they can practice more intelligent health techniques to prevent AIDS rather than confronting the issue at its root cause. Sin! You can't produce Christian unity that way. One God and Father of all. Brethren, a Buddhist cannot come to the hill of Jehovah. He must Turn from Gautama and his right thoughts and his right deeds and his right words. And he must bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. He must worship one Papa in heaven. Call no man father. The one God who sent Jesus Christ and through him said, You cannot get to the Father apart from me. That must be preached. It will bring enmity. It will bring suffering. It will bring persecution. It will make you divided. It will separate you from large portions of modern Christendom because they've forsaken it and left it and gone way, way astray. Now let's grow up and get, off, get out of our naivete. Don't be so hasty to have us in the front pages of the newspaper. Brethren, the newspaper ordinarily don't put people in the paper unless they've forsaken Christ. They don't, they don't want to hear what we have to say. Let's don't haste to be spectacular. Let's don't think if we could only get out in the open in the public, then we could win the world. Brethren, the reason we're not out in the open in the public is because the world isn't interested in us. Let's don't be naive.
There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of us all, one baptism. You see that? One baptism. One baptism. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's one saving experience. There's one thing that must happen for a man to be in Christ and to be in the body of Christ. The Spirit of Christ must baptize him into the body of Christ. He must have the experience of being united to Christ in reality, organic unity by faith. And if he hasn't that experience which proves itself in his life of obedience to Christ, he can't claim to be one with the Church of Christ and he's not in unity with Christ. Jesus prayed, though, that they be one in faith. There's also the unity of love. Look at verse 16 of Ephesians 4. This is the culmination of the fruit of Christ's work for his church. From whom, speaking of Christ, verse 16, all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplies, according to the working in due measure of each several part, makes the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. Not the love of the world. Not the love that denies the faith in the name of love, but the love growing out of the faith. The love of the brethren. The love of the saints of God. The love of the image of God in his people. You see, it's not Christian love to decide to disregard the hatred of God in others and pretend that they're in, in the name of love. It's Christian love to abhor that which is evil, to cleave to that which is good, to prove all things, hold fast that which proves to be acceptable. It's Christian love to speak the truth, every man to his neighbor, even if it hurts, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's Christian love to discipline and chasten children. It's Christian love to discipline and chasten church members. It's Christian love to face the realities of life and defend and honor the name of the honor of God against all the blasphemy of an age, to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness, not to be a part of them or to have fellowship with them. That's Christian love. That's the church building itself up in love. Not this jelly stuff that comes from Hollywood in which we all simply speak nice and smile and pretend to love, which also occurs in good churches. Well, you might go tell one brother about how mad you are at another brother, but you never go tell the brother you're mad at. That's not love. Unity is never produced by that. And a part of doing your diligence to maintain the unity of the faith is to go to the brother you've got a problem with and straighten it out with him. Now, don't even bring your worship gift to the altar until you've done it. Christ prayed for one love. Now this is not the nebulous love. This is Christian, biblical, gospel, spiritual love, mature, wise, building itself up. Yes, it is acceptance. Yes, it is tolerance. Yes, it is forbearance, forgiving one another, but in the, in the name of Christ and within the boundaries of Christ and his law. It also is the unity of hope. 
he says in this passage in Ephesians in verse 4 one hope of your calling you see this is what nails to the wall the reconstructionist theology the reconstructionist holds to an earthly hope that must come before the heavenly hope he's still holding out for something to happen in the world that must happen before the heavenly kingdom can come he's frustrated and I understand his frustration I could be tempted with such a theology he's frustrated it seems that the word of God has not covered the earth as the waters covered the sea it seems the kings of the earth have not bowed to Christ as we sang earlier it does not seem to him that Jesus is getting the glory due him and so he wants to see it come to pass and he's sincere many times and he's got lots of verses that seem to indicate that he's right but he's forsaken the one hope that unifies the Christian church 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this is a mini sermon on, church, on Christian unity so much more could be said about it and I'm emphasizing the things that are most usually forsaken in our culture I'm not emphasizing the things that are usually spoken of in the pulpit regarding unity and it's not because I don't believe those other things but for the sake of time I want to hit at the things that are most prone to lead us into error one hope 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 regarding the report that was spread abroad around the world about the Thessalonians in the middle part of verse 9 the apostle says and how you Turned unto God from idols. That's the requirement to be one in the church of Christ. You've got to get rid of your idols. That's the first thing. And then when they turn from their idols to God, it says to serve a living and true God. There's a transforming way of life that results from turning from the idols. And then, then it goes on in verse 10. Here's the other thing that happens when you turn to God from idols. When you repent, here's what happens. Wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come what happens when a Christian when a person is saved he turns from his idols to serve the living God and in serving God to wait from Jesus from heaven the rest of his life on this earth has one hope the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ his hope is not in escaping the tribulation he is in the tribulation now his hope is not in figuring out the Middle East so that he can predict the affairs of the earth in time to get out of town before the atomic blast that kind of hope makes people bow to the prophet in Montana and build a bomb shelter if you've read anything about that his hope is not to overcome this world system in this present evil world and run it like Christians know it ought to be run and then get our day so we can punish those people that aren't doing it the way they ought to do it. His hope is Jesus coming from heaven. His hope is the day when the Lord Jesus descends with all his holy angels and puts it all right and judges the wicked and brings all the kings of the earth to bow. The Husseins will bow to Jesus one day but most of them will not bow to Jesus until he comes 
but their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and their knees will bow and they will bow before him and at the name of Jesus the name Joseph named that boy because he's going to save his people from their sins their knees will bow not until then our hope is one hope it is the hope of being conformed to the image of Christ according to the predestining will of God in love having predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son having made us destined to be like Christ that's where we're headed that's our hope brethren we do not yet know what we are we don't know what the sons of God quite are yet but we know that when we shall see him we shall be like him he that has this hope in him purifies himself one hope it's the hope of the return of Jesus Christ when this vile body will be transformed like into his glorious body the frailty of the flesh will be no more this wretched heart will not sin anymore that's the hope of the saint that's the only hope in which we were saved that's the hope that makes us one brethren people who don't grieve over their sin don't know this hope and people that don't reckon with sin in their gospel don't know this hope and people that want to bypass dealing with sin and talk about love and peace without talking about the estrangement don't know this hope and can never be one with the body of Christ they separated themselves from revealed religion and formed one that suits their conscience. And I tell you, the Lord Jesus is not praying for that kind of unity. That they may be one in faith, in love, and in hope. Not outward uniformity, but a common inward transformation resulting in a common direction, a common moral purpose and lifestyle, a real and gracious disposition, and a heavenly perspective. That's the unity for which he's praying. Don't leave the scriptures for tongues and Rome and world peace. If you can pray for world peace, but don't set that as your hope. This world will never have it until the Lord establishes a new heaven and a new earth and a new world. That they may be one in faith and love and hope. That they may be one. That they may be one. Now, growing out of that, we may deduce then that the substance of his request for us and all believers, if we're to be one with him and the apostles and his father, what does that entail? Well, he's also praying here in John 17 for the same things for which he prayed for the apostles. Keep them. Sanctify them in the truth. The same things he prayed for them, though applied for different purposes in them and in us, he's praying for us. Now, the reason I wanted to add that is to encourage you. He's praying that the Father would make us one with the apostles in guarding and keeping. Unite us so to him and to his Father that we're kept in him. Unite us so to him and to the apostles that we with them are kept. 
by the power of God unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Is there any chance that you who have turned from this world, turned from your sins, turned from your idols, set to serve your to serve Christ and to wait for his son from heaven will lose it and be lost? You'll be kept. Because the Lord Jesus prayed so. I pray not for these only that they may be kept. I pray for also those that will believe on me through their name. It is this reason the Father sent me into the world, that all who come to me I shall in no wise cast out, but should raise him up at the last day. It's not just that he won't reject you when you come. It's that once you've come, he'll keep you. Oh, dear brethren, do you know the security? Do you know the comfort? that comes from knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ has willed that you shall be kept, that the devil cannot conjure up enough, enough opposition and enough damage to get you and lose you and steal you away from my Father whose hands have you. Do you know that the delight and the joy that comes from the security of the blanket of God's love around you the keeping love of God based on the request of His Son who died that you may make it all the way to heaven. When you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy of any good thing from God and thinking that you're going to lose it if it's left up to you, don't, doesn't it help you to remember that it's not left up to you? Which of you thinks you're going to be able to persevere to the end? Unless the Lord keeps you. You'll persevere because he's going to keep you. Keep them. Keep them. The father's never yet turned down a request of his son. Sanctify them. You ever going to be holy? I mean holy, holy, holy. You ever going to be holy the way you want to be holy? Well, now, I trust that none of you is so carnal as to take what I'm saying and say, Ah, Ben, I can lower my guard. I can stay with some of these sins because I am going to make it to the end. If you do that, you've forgotten everything I've said already about turning from your idols. You're denying the very essence of salvation when you excuse sin in the name of preservation. But don't you grieve? Don't you grieve even to this hour about how sinful you are? Brethren, my heart is so filled with sin, I'm not even able to confess it. I don't even know how to put into words what I see in this heart. I come to confess it and I'm out of words. And all I can say is, Lord, this rotten heart, even beneath my confession, is sin. I can feel it. Is it going to be this way forever? No. No. Sanctify them! And that involves lots of things. First of all, sanctify them definitively. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says that they may be separate. Come out from among them and be separate and don't touch the unclean thing. The Lord Jesus died so that his people be different. And if you're not different, you're not saved. You're different. If you weren't different, you wouldn't grieve over how undifferent you are. Do you understand that? If you had not been definitively set apart for God, it wouldn't bother you that you so little conform to His image. You wouldn't be agonizing over your sin if you hadn't been saved. You hate your sin because... 
Your Savior made you to hate your sin. You didn't hate it at one time. You hate it now. There's been a definitive sanctification. The fruit of Christ's dying love in his prayer. You're sanctified. But not only definitively, also entirely. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 May your whole body and soul and spirit be preserved blameless till the day of Christ. It is the will of God in his Son that you become sinless. Someday, you will not sin. You'll not have a motive of sin in your heart. I cannot imagine that, brethren. I honestly cannot picture that. I've never been that way. I've never seen that. I've never felt what it means to have a pure heart in the, in the absolute sense. I've never known what it means to have such a freed conscience that there's nothing nagging it. I've never known what it means to walk into the presence of God in my prayers as a sinless man with no motives that are questionable, with no imaginations of my heart that are deliriously wrong. I've never known. I've hardly known what it was like without having some raging sin battling away at me. But the day is coming when I shall be presented spotless and without blemish and without blame before the one who died for me. That's why he died. Brethren, it's almost, I'm so accustomed to the fight that it's hard to imagine what it'll be like not to be fighting. Sometimes I'm, I'm afraid even to think about it much. I'm afraid I'll let my guard down. I'm afraid I'll be enjoying the thought of that so much that I'll lose my grip. But we ought to think about it. We ought to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We ought to enjoy the prospect that we're not only going to be kept, we're going to be made righteous. We're not always going to have to stand up in prayer meeting and start our prayer with, Lord, though we know we have nothing in ourselves that's righteous, and though we still have sinned up to this, there's going to be a time we're going to be able to talk to the Lord without having to first ask forgiveness for sin. And I doubt that any of us will do that with any sort of brashness or bragging. I don't know how it will bear it, the perpetual sense of utter weeping for joy that we've been made clean. I don't know how we'll bear it. If we didn't have glorified bodies, I doubt that we could. But you see how he ends it in verse 24. He says, I will also, Father, I desire that they be with me where I am. See, that's the culmination of all this sanctification and keeping. Just to make it clear to you, he's not just praying that in this world you make it. He's not even just praying that you'll be ethically conformed to his moral image when you're finished. He wants you to be with him where he is. Father, I desire. Isn't that lovely? Listen at your Savior speaking. Father, I desire that they be with me where I am. It's not just that he's sort of doling out good things. and see, The Lord is doing more than giving you a ticket to paradise. He doesn't mail you a ticket to paradise and you take off to paradise and he stay back at the travel agent. He wants you to come and be with him. He is not sending you to paradise. He is bringing you. And He's what makes it paradise. And you will delight Him in paradise. He desires that you be with Him where He is and behold His glory. 
Nothing short of complete and utter and absolute perfect salvation from everything that bothers us is the Lord praying for in this passage. For everyone that believes on him, it is his will to keep, to sanctify, to glorify, to perfect us into one. You see, that's the direction of oneness. Christian oneness is oneness in faith and oneness in sanctification and finally all together in glory. Dear brethren, with all due respects to those that call the name of Jesus but pervert his gospel, for all due, with all due respect to those, and there's not much respect due them, who claim that eventually every person's going to be saved because God's gracious and loving and merciful. I say that they're going to miss out on the unity of the glory of the sons of God unless they turn from their pride and their idols and bow to the only way there is to get to God, turning from sin, depending on Christ alone. The Lord Jesus was born to take us to heaven. Do you have a personal interest in the reason he was born? Do you remember what he says here? That the world may know that thou hast sent me. Brethren, tonight, today, the world doesn't know that the Father sent Jesus. They know that Jesus was born because there's Christmas. They don't know that the Father sent him. That's all the difference in the world. They are able to talk about baby Jesus. You can go to the shopping center and hear Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And you can hear the Christian gospel on the music pipes. But it's not because the man who runs the place necessarily believes that the Father sent Jesus to save us from our sins. They reckon with His birth, but not with His sending. His prayer is that God do such in us that when they see what happened to us, they may know God sent Him. Send Him to save from sin. Send Him to deliver us to glory. All this with the result that the world not just admit He was born and have a few holidays. That's not enough. It's not enough to say. Now, children, Santa Claus is not what Christmas is really all about. It's all about the birth of Jesus. There's more to it than that. It's about the Father in love for poor, ungodly, unwilling sinners, giving up his own son and sparing him not that he might bring a bunch of rebels to his kingdom and have fellowship with them. It's about the Son in his love for us who willingly obeyed his Father unto the death and laid his life down that he might have us as his companions and his brethren. It is about a holy trinity who is unwilling to leave us in our sin and our rebellion, but desires to know us and love us and commune with us. And he will come and have supper with us and we with him. If any man hear my voice, let him open the door and I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. God wants nothing less, oh dear brethren, than to have fellowship with you forever. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your companion. Now, certainly not your peer, but your companion. The God of heaven. 
wants you at his table. And you are those in the highways and the hedges who cannot return anything to him. And so he does specialize in inviting the unworthy and the ones who can offer nothing in return. Why? Not just to gloat over his grace, but truly to enjoy your fellowship. I desire that those you've given me be with me where I am. Oh, dear brethren, there are people in this church you don't want to be with very much, but the Lord Jesus wants to be with you. Who are you? It ought to color the way you look at each other. I tell you what, when you look around on the faces of those who aren't your favorites in your church, who don't fit your clique, who aren't like you, who don't talk like you, dress like you, think like you, remember the Lord Jesus wants to dwell with them in his table forever. He sees something in them he delights in. You better start finding what it is. That's the only ground on which a church can love each other fervently with a pure heart. Because the Lord Jesus loves you. I can hardly believe my ears when I hear these words, Father, I desire that those you've given me be with me where I am. Some of you, most of us, I suppose, at a certain time of day, want to close our doors and curl into our houses and don't want to be bothered anymore. Me and my family, and the rest, please don't call. I'm, this is family time. This is my house. Some of you are so socially out of step that you'd rather do that by yourself. You don't even want a family. But I tell you, the Lord Jesus loves communion with his people. He doesn't have any of his children that he hopes won't bother him. He desires you to be with him where he is. And he shall accomplish his desire. Father, I know that thou always hearest me, but for their sakes I said it. The Father always hears his Son. I want you to get it in your conscience. I want you to sink it down into your heart that everything he asks for you in this prayer, you shall have. You shall be glorified. You shall dwell with him in peace. You shall gaze upon his face forever. You shall serve him without sin. You shall be delivered from the throes of this world and the throes of your sin and the throes of the devil and you shall be freed. Or he died in vain. I would ask you who have never come to grips with the root problem, the root issue. And the root issue is this. You have not bowed your will to that of Jesus Christ. You have not seen him as the Savior from your sins. You have sins you don't want to be saved from. He is not Jesus to you. Because you have no intention of being saved from some sins that he came into the world to save you from. You must get that settled. If you are to see glory and to fellowship with him forever, you must, you must turn from your idol, whatever it is. And you will not get there because you got here. You may get into the membership of this church and not get into the membership of Christ's body.
You may get into the membership of this church and you may fox yourself and the rest of us, but you cannot deceive him. He knows whether you've cast yourself on him, trusted in him, bowed to him. He knows. And eventually he'll expose the reality. Get it settled with him. He's the one way to God. Quit compromising that with the men of the world to get their favor. Stand for the glory of Christ. Worship Christ and wait for his Son from heaven. And you shall see him and you shall rejoice when he comes. Do not go out of this place today thinking that you're going to be all right with God without dealing with your sin and without coming to a Savior who saves from sin. Don't think you're going to get right with God by changing. You can't change. You've tried. Don't think you're going to get right with God by improving enough to get yourself in a position where you're presentable. You're not presentable. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags in His sight. You come the way you are and you leave the rest behind and you look away from yourself and you look to that cross and you look to the person on that cross and you look to Christ and that weight of your guilt and your incessant efforts to cover your tracks and to make yourself presentable to everybody around you and to fake it and pretend will all fall off your back like it did pilgrims. Looking away from yourself to Christ, you find peace and no other way. And when you do, you'll join the rest of us who rejoice in anticipation of the day when the likes of us will be like Him and will be one with Him and be in fellowship with Him. May God give us the grace during this period of holidays when we have so many other things going on that we not lose sight of such a precious commodity which is ours through the prayer of our Savior and such a prospect which is ours through the intercession of Christ. Think as you think about all this other stuff at Christmas and all the legitimate good feelings that happen at Christmas. Think also and meditate also on what our Lord prayed for you and what you shall have at the end because of his love. May God give us grace to lay hold on what really matters and to rejoice in what really lasts and to understand ourselves to be the objects of Christ's real concern in prayer which will be answered in due time. And may any of you who are not in grace, who are strangers to Christ and who sit among us, not one with us, because you're not one with him may God give you the grace to embrace him fully as your savior and turn from your sins and wait for him from heaven let's bow together our father we who do believe upon your son and have believed the witness of the apostles are thankful that the substance of his desire and intent for us and the reason he came into this world and the reason his name is Jesus is indeed completely and utterly to save us from our sins. And we thank you for the delight that comes to our souls as we contemplate the fact that one day all our sins will be behind us forever and complete and perfect salvation will be ours. We thank you for what you have done in turning us away from sin and making us your sons and daughters. And we thank you for what you are going to do 
in the fulfillment of your son's accomplishments and requests. O Lord, strengthen our faith, strengthen our hope, strengthen our love one for the other and for you, and strengthen our resolve to stand as lights in this world even in the midst of persecution as we defend the honor and the reputation and the glory of the unique Son of God, the only Savior of the world. And our Father, we also would pray that you would in your mercy in these late hours touch the hearts of many others and make open their eyes that they may see that Jesus, Jesus is the Savior of their sins. Lord, in this place today, perhaps some of our children or perhaps some of our guests or perhaps someone who's fooled himself in the membership may have your spirit to work. We plead with you to do it and to convert the sinner and to deliver him from his unrighteousness and his deception and to exalt the Savior. Oh, God, we pray for this woman and others like her who are counting their beads that you may make them see that there is a Savior who is already disposed to give good things to his children without an intermediary. We thank you that there's one who has already given access to God to his people, who is not pleased with the vain repetitions of the Gentiles, but who simply responds to the simple requests of simple sinners who come to him in faith. Lord, save this old wretched generation. Rise up, O God, and make your word to dwell among us. Give strength to your servants in this hour of so much opposition and so little encouragement. And exalt the Son of God again in our day. O God, hear our plea. And make Jesus' name precious to us all the more. And to all the more to be joined to us. For we ask it to his ultimate glory. In his name. Amen.